Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're joined by Dr. Stacy Ishman, a pediatric otolaryngologist with further subspecialty training in sleep medicine uh, to talk a little bit more about sleep apnea uh, in kids. So Dr. Ishman, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thanks for inviting me. Um, just for background, I, I do want to mention that we have um, a really nice episode on sleep disorder breathing by Dr. Sarah Bowe um, that touches on a number of, of different related topics of sleep disorder breathing as well as OSA in kids. Um, this episode will be taking a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the nuances of taking care of kids with OSA. And I guess just to start off with to set the framework for this episode, then Dr. Ishman, do you mind just clarifying or talking a little bit about um, the difference between when I say sleep disorder breathing and OSA in kids? What what are the distinctions there? Yeah, so really the distinction for many people is the results on either a sleep study or cardiorespiratory monitoring device. Um, that is the primary distinguishing factor. Sleep disorder breathing is sort of a broader category that includes, includes snoring kids as well as those with obstructive sleep apnea. But more importantly, there's some debate at the point at which you have to think about treatment. So usually this includes sleep disorder breathing symptoms. Um, it may include a sleep study that suggests obstructive sleep apnea and then oftentimes incorporates the symptoms that may make people think about obstructive sleep apnea syndrome versus just obstructive sleep apnea, which is numbers on a sleep study. And so when when you're seeing kids in clinic, um, I guess what, what clinical features start um, putting you down the pathway of needing to work up a kid for OSA rather than just saying, you know, this, this kid meets all the classic features of sleep disorder breathing. I think we can pursue it tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, what says, hey, we need to start, we need to work this up a little bit um, further before just jumping to surgery? So I'm sure Sarah did a lovely job of covering this in her sleep disorder breathing episode, but I would say it's the same symptoms we consider when we think about tonsil and adenoid removal, since we're really talking a little bit more here about what to do after that. And it's snoring, daytime sleepiness, um, it may be daytime symptoms like hyperactivity or poor school performance, neurocognitive issues. Um, it could be nighttime issues like nocturnal enuresis, restless sleep. And so really the same battery of symptoms that you would look for daytime and nighttime um, that, that just persists after adenotonsillectomy or recur. And then in these kids, are you is typically a polysomnogram the initial workup um, step then? So in the United States, 90% of kids get their tonsils and adenoids out without a sleep study. I think most people think that if you're considering some intervention after adenotonsillectomy for suspected OSA or for persistent sleep disorder breathing, that in an ideal world, polysomnography is recommended. There are some kids and some places where those are not available. And so oftentimes you'll consider things like cardiorespiratory monitoring or a daytime oximetry study during a nap if it's an infant, or a nighttime oximetry study in, in either infants or older kids. But in an ideal world, polysomnography is a nice thing to obtain in order to consider further treatment. What would be the, I guess when thinking about polysomnography in kids compared to adults, what are the main distinctions that you think are important between adult and kids uh, polysomnography? There are some differences in terms of what we look at in kids versus adults, and those include CO2 monitoring, um, which is routinely carried out in pediatric sleep labs, but not in adults. 
Um, and this is one of the things that results from the fact that kids tend to have long events that may be partial in characterization in terms of obstruction. So adults very commonly have discrete events, oftentimes apneas, easy to see and to score. Kids may more often have long partial airway obstruction, which may or may not last for a significantly longer period than what you would see in an adult. Um, but you might have a two or three minute area of partial airway obstruction that can be resulted in the scoring of one hypopnea, whereas an adult, they may in that same three minute period have had multiple apneas. And so the way that those studies look are going to be a little bit different. In addition, adults often arouse during a sleep study, whereas children oftentimes have subcortical arousals or no arousal. And so they will look different when you're scoring them. But if you're looking at a report, um, the numbers that we see for kids are going to look overall lower than the numbers that we think about for cutoffs for adults for sleep apnea. And part of it's related to some of those factors I just mentioned, like the duration of events or the fact that they're less commonly associated with arousals. When we talk about CO2 monitoring specifically, are there some numbers that are cutoffs, cutoff values that we think are clinically uh, important? Yeah, in children, we tend to think that it's important to consider those kids who have an end-tidal carbon dioxide level greater than 50 millimeters of mercury for more than 10% of total sleep time. There's a separate di diagnosis called alveolar hypoventilation. This tends to be diagnosed when 30% of the night is spent with an CO2 over 50. But when we think about kids who we think have sleep disorder breathing or obstructive sleep apnea, regardless of the apnea hypopnea index, if it's greater than 50 for greater than 10% of the night, we really start thinking about further interventions, even though it's not formally in this alveolar hyperventilation group. Just digging into that a little bit deeper, um, I guess, how, how exactly does that inform your clinical decision making? So in my case, I have kids who may have a CO2 that was greater than 50 for 10, 15, 20% of the night. Um, they don't fit a formal alveolar hyperventilation group. But they are kids who I know that there's enough hypoventilation that I'm concerned that we should treat that even if the apnea hypopnea index is low or even in the normal range. And so let's say there's somebody who has 15% of the night with the CO2 over 50. The apnea hypopnea index is less than one, but they have symptoms of sleep disorder breathing or obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. In that case, I would offer treatment and have a conversation with families about that. Um, we also know that Elevated CO2 levels can have effects on um, daytime function and also, you know, in some of the anesthesia studies even have significant effects on your um, response to pain medications. And so um, if you think about it, CO2 is a narcotizing agent, i.e. something that makes you more tired, probably makes it so you're not working at your best. And so those are the kinds of conversations we may have in families um, where the CO2 level is elevated with or without elevation of the apnea hypopnea index, and sometimes that CO2 elevation is out of proportion to what the apnea hypopnea index might be, especially in kids with hypotonia, such as you might see in kids with muscular dystrophy or those with Down syndrome. And in that case, I'd be more likely to treat because of the CO2 level and not just from the apnea hypopnea index. How does um, O2 saturations fit into all of this? Well, really... Obviously, those are two sides of the same coin, right? Because we breathe oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. And so um, we do look at CO2 levels really isolated from O2 levels or oxygen levels. Um, 
Obviously, oxygen is something that we keep in mind, but it's interesting because the desaturations in children are obviously um, less dramatic than we see sometimes in the adults. And a lot of that, I think, is because they're less likely to have complete apneas and more likely to have those hypopneas we talked about earlier or partial airway obstructions. So on the plus side for them, they're much less likely to have these significant desaturations we may see in severe sleep apnea in adults. Um, but it also makes it harder to use an oxygen cutoff in terms of declaring severity. And while in the past there was some um, guidelines in the adult world about what levels or below what levels we might call somebody mild, moderate, or severe, I think more and more we realize that so much of this has to do with lots of factors like your pulmonary function and um, whether you have apneas or hypopneas. And so I'm not negating oxygen levels, lowest uh, oxygen levels or saturationators do correlate well with outcomes in adults, especially, but also in kids. Um, but we don't have a lot of research that suggests just the oxygen level itself is probably enough for us to go by, especially in kids who may have other comorbidities. How do you take into account um, something like the ODI or o oxygen desaturation index or just the idea of t time spent at certain desaturations? Is that something clinically you're using much? Yeah. So especially in certain countries where oximetry is first line assessment, um, the ODI is really an important tool. And so if you look at the data, especially out of other countries like Canada, the suggestion is if the ODI is greater than probably two, three, four events an hour, um, that you're probably in the moderate sleep apnea range at a minimum. So an ODI and an obstructive apnea hypopnea index really don't correlate directly. In fact, if you look at the ODI numbers, they typically tend to be a little bit lower, um, meaning I might have an ODI of three, but I might have an apnea hypopnea index of six, seven, eight, greater than 10. And so we do keep those in account. Um, we also look at percentage of time with the oxygen less than 90. And so sort of the combination of those two is if the saturations are less than 90 for 2% more of the night, it really pushes us to consider some kind of treatment for kids. Um, and again, keeping in mind, this is a different group than adults where we might think about things like COPD or long-term lung disease. Um, but also having to bear in mind that some of these kids, if you treat them young enough, maybe infants who have you know, the long-standing issues from bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or they have um, alveolar simplification if they have Down syndrome. And so, you know, oxygen and the ODI can really be useful adjuncts or primary um, assessments if you don't have a sleep study available. And circling back to the AHI there, so uh, you mentioned, you know, previously a little bit about the different ranges. Um, obviously, the how we classify mild, moderate, and severe differs um, from adults. It is I guess, why why do we think of the AHI um, levels or the number of events in an hour being so different in kids and adults? So some of it has to do with the physiologic difference we talked about. So kids are more likely to have long duration events that are partial airway obstruction. And so a typical adult sleep study in three minutes with somebody who has an AHI that's in the severe range may have a pause three to four times a minute. You know, that could end up being let's say he has one a minute. So it ends up being 60 over an hour. And the same young gentleman or young lady um, may have a three minute event. So they may have another pause and another three minute event. And in fact, in six or seven minutes, they only have two pauses, whereas in an adult, you might have six or seven. And so um, first of all, there's some differences there. They also don't have the same kinds of arousals I had mentioned earlier. They don't have the same kinds of drops in oxygens or discrete apneas. Um, 
And so when we look at those numbers, um, they're going to physiologically be different. But on the flip side, um, we also have some longer term adult data. So we have longitudinal studies in adults, like the sleep heart health study, which was performed in adults, which gives us good population level data to say this is what sleep apnea looks like and its correlation with outcomes in adults. Unfortunately, we don't have the same kind of longitudinal data in children. And so we have in adults sort of a, a, a direct connection between the cutoff levels and its effect on things like um, heart attack and stroke and um, mortality levels. Whereas in children, a lot of that is really based on normal data and then statistical um, assessment to move that to what seems like mild, moderate, and severe, you know, two standard deviations greater than this. And so really the numbers that have been derived for children's cutoffs, which are one to five events an hour for mild sleep apnea, five to 10 for moderate and greater than 10 for severe, um, correlate more with what is sort of statistically normal from normal values as opposed to adults, where they were able to look at long-term outcomes and to say, you know, at these cutoff levels of 15 events an hour, which is the cutoff from mild to moderate for adults, this is where we saw a difference in terms of some of the morbidity and mortality data. And hopefully we'll gain that over time. It may or may not change those cutoff levels, but it, it leaves an asterisk next to the pediatric cutoffs, which is not there for the adults because of these long-term longitudinal studies. Um, last question about polysomnogram testing. Is is the rest of the test pretty comparable to an adult, like the, you know, the EKG monitoring, um, looking at periodic leg movements, those sorts of things? A lot of them are, are similar. Um, the periodic leg movement index is actually at a slightly different level for kids than it is for adults. For periodic limb movements, we do pay much more attention to kids who have more than five leg kicks an hour, whereas in adults, the cutoff is closer to 15. Some of that has to do with the fact that adults are much more easily able to give us the clinical symptoms of restless leg syndrome. So they could talk about this urge to move and some of the other things, whereas kids oftentimes may have sleep disturbance with an inability to describe the symptoms in the way that an adult might be able to. And so there's sort of a, a lower cutoff for a lower level of suspicion so that we don't miss something in children that's easy to miss when they don't have the language that adults may have. Is total sleep time the same in terms of what constitutes an adequate study? Yeah, those are very similar between the two. We look for ideally four hours of total sleep time. And the cutoffs in terms of what we think is good for sleep efficiency tends to be 85 or 90%, although quite honestly, kids sleep better in a sleep lab than adults do for the most part. I want to shift next to the topic of drug-induced sleep endoscopy. Overarchingly, or 1,000-foot view, what are the kids or what are the clinical scenarios maybe that you're, you start thinking this is, would be a useful adjunct in the workup of uh, obstructive sleep apnea? I think in most people's hands, drug-induced sleep endoscopy is indicated for, um, you know, honestly, some kids who are, are very similar to the adults that we look at. There was a consensus statement that came out earlier this year from the American Academy of Otolaryngology. And they talked about a few um, um, areas in which they think drug-induced sleep endoscopy is useful. And, and quite honestly, I ascribe to these, which is why I'm mentioning it. Um, and they really include kids who have small tonsils. So in my mind, that's one plus tonsils. Although in that, in that consensus statement, there was some debate about wh whether small tonsils started at one plus or two plus. Um, they think it's useful if you're thinking about additional surgery, especially additional pharyngeal surgery. Um, and then there was some thought about what AHI or apnea hypopnea index cutoff you would consider using drug-induced sleep endoscopy. I think in that consensus statement, they talked about greater than two events an hour, but 
There's definitely people who would consider it at more than five or more than 10, depending on what symptoms look like. And, and they're actually in the process of putting together a persistent pediatric sleep apnea consensus statement where those kinds of questions are being debated. There was also a conversation about the fact that prior to adenotonsillectomy, that maybe drug-induced sleep endoscopy has a limited role. So I think in the persistent group, a lot of people th- think it has you know significant usefulness. Um, and that when you use it in that group, the real um, ability is that it allows you to identify additional sites of obstruction or in kids who have an additional assessment, you might in fact find tonsil regrowth in those who had tonsillotomy, or you may find adenoid regrowth in those kids who may be predisposed to that. One question I wanted to ask you a little bit about just differentiating how we think about this compared to adults. Uh, you know, oftentimes um, it's a necessary precursor for, for prior to hypoglossal nerve stimulation in, in adults, but in kids, seen it combined, you know, we start off with drug-induced sleep endoscopy with the plans of addressing some of those other sites of obstruction that same day. Um, is that pretty common or how is, how I guess, how is drug-induced sleep endoscopy typically used in terms of um, addressing those areas? Is that done same day or spaced out or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it really probably depends on the surgeon and the family and the clinical situation. There are absolutely um, families and clinicians who feel like the safest thing is to try and combine a drug-induced sleep endoscopy with another procedure as it may, in fact, limit the amount of additional anesthetic that might need to be used for kids. There are others who think of it more like a microlaryngoscopy for an airway surgery. Um, And so they might be more inclined to say, actually, I think we should do the drug-induced sleep endoscopy, come up with our options, think about the appropriate you know, post-op setting, pre-op management, other any additional workup that might be useful, and then consider whether we really want to do those at the same time. I can tell you at the beginning of my career, I did more of them together. Um, at this point, I do more of them separately because I think of it more as a, a staging procedure um, to decide what options there may be for kids. And I think there's a huge value to talk to families about all of their options. And those may include medical treatments like medications or like CPAP or like dental appliances, as well as multiple surgical options, which may be done either concurrently or in a staged fashion. What about classification schemas when, when actually doing the drug-induced sleep endoscopy? Is the vote system used like in adults? Or how, how do you think about classifying levels of obstruction and severity? So we did an assessment looking at the classification systems that have at least been published. And while a number did use the vote system, There's also a number of other systems that are used, and I think a lot of people probably even have homegrown systems like we do at my own institution. And part of that is because um, in kids, I think we put more stock into the nasal obstruction impact on obstructive sleep apnea. If you look at the meta-analysis in adults, it says maybe 11 and a bends an hour could be ameliorated by nasal surgery. Um, Most of us know that that probably brings you from mild to mild or severe or moderate to maybe lower one lower stage. Um, But in kids, 11 events an hour takes you from serious sleep apnea to no sleep apnea for many kids. And so I think we put a little more more stock in the nasal evaluation. We also know adenoid regrowth can occur, which is not specifically included in the vote system. Um, And there's much more conversation about sleep state-dependent laryngomalacia. So the idea that maybe some kind of supraglottic intervention might be useful as opposed to just the epiglottic um, evaluation that might be done in vote. So Vote has usefulness, probably needs to have some additions, 
There are some scoring systems that have been created by other authors like Dr. Lamb and um, Dr. Chan, um, both of whom have published pediatric systems that incorporate things like the nose and the larynx and adenoids more effectively. Practically speaking, when, when we talk about the sedation used for performing drug-induced sleep, sleep endoscopy, do you, do you feel strongly one way or another using propofol, for instance, or Presidex or some of the different options available? Yeah, I will tell you that my own inclination, and this is totally my bias, is that dexmedetomidine is probably a more optimal form of sedation for use in pediatric dice. Um, part of the reason for that isn't that propofol is a bad medication, it's that it's dose dependent and in kids where everything's weight-based and not quite as straightforward as is an adult, you just have to have an anesthesia colleague who's really um, paying attention and adept at it because it's really easy to over-sedate. And I'm not sure if things look the same when you over-sedate and come back as they do when you sort of slightly sedate people down into, into the area where they need to be. And so um, I think it's a little bit more consistent to use dexmedetomidine, but it does have its downsides in that either you have to give a nasal pretreatment in the pre-op area, or you have to use a 10-minute continuous infusion prior to doing any intervention. And so um, if you look at the pediatric dice consensus statement that I mentioned earlier, they actually said either propofol or dexmedetomidine were optimal forms of sedation. But I think it should also be noticed that it really what was not considered optimal forms of sedation was inhalational agents, and like, except for gaining IV access during DICE. Is that because it's thought to change the morphology or the pattern of obstruction? Or Yeah, there's actually reasonable data if you look at both animal and human studies that suggest or actually show that inhalational agents actually can by themselves cause respiratory depression, but also change... Um, the reactivity of the airway. So you may in fact see greater levels of collapse than you would without the inhalational agents on board and perhaps overcall certain areas of obstruction. Last question I have for you about drug-induced sleep endoscopy, uh, something we'll touch on maybe in a little bit more depth in a minute, but when we think about the, um, the growing research use or potential use for um, hypoglossal nerve stimulation or upper airway stimulation for um, kids with hypotonia like like Down syndrome, for instance, is drug-induced sleep endoscopy used similarly to its use in adults in terms of the workup for, like, for, for instance, concentric collapse at the velum? Is that pretty analogous? There is absolutely the same um, utility in, in kids with a, a hypoglossal nerve stimulator use. So um, I happened to uh, participate in one of the trials where we looked at kids with Down syndrome um, who uh, were being considered for drug-induced sleep endoscopy. And actually, we used both CineMRI and drug-induced sleep endoscopy and sort of looked at the two, not in a formal way, but in a more anecdotal way, um, but recognized that looking at that dynamic collapse was something that could be done um, usefully in kids using both those modalities. Um, there is no trial that I'm aware of where they've actually implanted kids who do have concentric collapse um, with drug-induced sleep endoscopy, on drug-induced sleep endoscopy, although I do know that there's some trials in Australia in adults where they're looking at that concentric collapse, and there are some case reports out there in adults. But to my mind, it's it's just as useful as identifying concentric collapse in kids. Um, I do think this is where you have to be really careful about what inhalational agent you're using because things like inhalational um, anesthetics can increase the likelihood of lateral wall collapse, and that by itself may overcall uh, lateral wall collapse and then, you know, 
keep someone from being able to consider a modality like hypoglossal nerve stimulator where it might be useful. But yeah, we use dice in children like we use dice in adults in order to look at things like concentric collapse at the velum. And then last uh, workup area I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned just briefly in that response, um, the MRI option or other potentially other uh, imaging modality workup um, uh, options that are available. Are, are there any you're routinely using in clinical practice? So at the institution I'm at, we use Cine MRI, which is a dynamic airway MRI. And I do think it's really useful at identifying primary versus secondary sites of obstruction, more so than I think drug-induced sleep endoscopy does. In addition, I think it's really useful at identifying things like um, large base of tongue with thin lingual tonsils versus large lingual tonsils. And the reason I say that is because we oftentimes, I think, will overcall lingual tonsil hypertrophy if we use just drug-induced sleep endoscopy. And in fact, we had an abstract we presented this past year to that effect. Um, but Cine MRI also requires an anesthetic. Um, in not every place can it be combined with dice. In our institution, we put them together, so it's at least a single anesthetic. Um, but it also requires some expertise um, from both your anesthesia and your MRI colleagues and a little bit of bravery from your anesthesiologist who has to let a child in the MRI scanner obstruct repeatedly in order to get a good evaluation. Follow-up question on that. How does that actually work to obtain that imaging study? So in my institution, we do the drug-induced sleep endoscopy actually in the MRI induction room. And then using the same anesthetic in our institution, we use dexmedetomidine. They go right into the MRI scanner and do subsequent assessments. But what you can imagine is in between um, imaging series, sometimes they want to go in there and give a jaw thrust or give a little oxygen. And that's much harder in an MRI scanner than it might be when you're standing right next to somebody during drug-induced sleep endoscopy. The next section I wanted to transition to, um, it's just the, the overarching topic of treatment of uh, pediatric obs obstructive sleep apnea. And, and first, I wanted to talk a little bit about conservative treatment options and, and starting off um, uh, with actually the medical treatment options. What are your thoughts on the utility of things like Flonase or, or um, uh, Montelukast in the treatment of, of pediatric OSA? Yeah, I think that there's reasonable data for both. Um, there is a black box warning for Montelukast. So in kids who have suicidal ideation or significant mood disorders prior to being treated for obstructive sleep apnea, um, I think it's important to keep those in mind. And then there's also a subset of kids who have significant behavioral issues when using Montelukast. I know that has kept a lot of people from using it, but I can tell you I have a reasonable number of folks who really have used it very successfully. Um, they looked out for those symptoms. They didn't have them. And it's a, t a pill that doesn't taste very bad, that's really easy to take, um, and also may help with allergy or asthma. And so I actually think Montelukast continues to be a reasonable treatment option, but with those caveats, so you have to pay attention to some of the mood and disorder and behavior issues. Um, Singular um, is the one that's been studied the most, or Montelukast, but you know there are others in that class that just haven't been studied in this regard. And then nasal steroids, there's a number of different nasal steroids that have been tested. Um, they all seem to be useful, especially in kids with nasal obstruction. They make a ton of sense. But I'll also tell you in terms of tolerability, I have far more people who are willing to take you know, a medication under their tongue that tastes like a Pop-Tart, which is what Montelukast is, not a Pop-Tart, excuse me, a smart, like a Smarty than they are to take a nasal spray, which is, you know, not super popular among the kids I take care of. So it sounds great to say we should definitely go to nasal steroids first because there's no black box warning. 
But in fact, I think the toleration among my patients isn't nearly as high and a lot more of them discontinue use before they come back to me than they do with the monolucast. Um, if you look at the studies where people use both, they actually don't seem to be synergistic. So using one gives you four or five events an hour of you know improvement. Using the other gives you the same amount of improvement. If you use both, they tend to still be four or five events an hour worth of improvement. So oftentimes I'll start both and tell people that if they're using both, like if their insurance gave them both, um, then we can decide which one we, we want to get rid of. And if in fact, more commonly, they either didn't like one of them or they weren't able to get one based on insurance, um, then we stick with the one that they're able to use, um, whether that's from an insurance standpoint or from a functional standpoint. I also want to make one caveat. Observation is a reasonable um, treatment for obstructive sleep apnea, especially in kids who have mild sleep apnea with no symptoms. And increasingly, I think people are talking about kids with moderate sleep apnea with no daytime symptoms. And so somewhere between one and five for sure, and somewhere maybe between one and 10 events an hour with no daytime symptoms and no comorbidities, it's probably reasonable to consider observation just as we do with adults with mild sleep apnea. Yeah. How do you approach counseling parents on that? I mean, they've got a diagnosis of sleep apnea, but you know, questions of long term, is it really something that's going to lead to deleterious health outcomes for them? Um, I guess, yeah. How do you think about that, that clinical scenario in terms of just a mild or moderate OSA and whether or not it's really useful to pursue a TNA? Well, so if you're talking about pre-TNA, TNA is so ungodly effective that I actually usually recommend TNA in kids with symptoms, period. It's more than 80% effective in otherwise healthy kids. And even in obese kids or kids with Down syndrome, it's probably at least 50% effective. And so if we're talking about pre-TNA, I actually think it's a really useful surgery that does a really good job. If you're talking about persistent sleep apnea where the tonsils and the adenoids are out, um, I think symptoms makes a huge difference. And so if there's very mild symptoms with very mild disease, it's probably reasonable to watch them as there's some data at least that some kids will resolve over time, whereas other kids may get worse over the time and we don't yet know which kids are which. Um, if, however, you have significant daytime symptoms, even with mild obstructive sleep apnea, um, I do think that there's reasonable data showing that adenotonsillectomy is useful. And if you look at the CHAT study, which is the childhood adenotonsillectomy study, a lot of people point to that to talk about this significant resolution rate without TNA, which is, is great. It did show that. But in the same study, it showed the sleep study resolved, but very infrequently did the symptoms resolve. So if you have an asymptomatic kid, probably very reasonable to just watch them and repeat a sleep study down the road. If you have a child with symptoms, it's probably much more reasonable to consider some type of treatment, whether that's medical treatment or surgical treatment, um, if those symptoms are significant and and having an impact on quality of life. What is um, the stability of some of the palate surgery, you know, not just TNA, but I mean, also including pharyngoplasty um, and all its various forms. Um, like, I, I guess, thinking of adults where sometimes the shelf life um, of that surgery, it's not something that is thought to be a permanent solution uh, most of the time, I guess. In kids, let's say, you know, they've undergone a TNA, maybe plus or minus a pharyngoplasty, they've got mild or moderate OSA, not a lot of symptoms. What what do you, what is like the prognosis, for instance, of their OSA? Or is that something they'd be expected to maybe get better as they grow and approach adulthood? Or That's a fantastic question. And if you could tell the NIH we need that funded, that would be awesome. Um, we don't have great longitudinal data. So if you look symptomatically at kids, 
There is a significant proportion who have adenotonsillectomy and never have symptoms again. There's a group who have adenotonsillectomy and then have recurrent symptoms. And then there's a group who never needed their tonsils out, but develop symptoms when they're older. So um, I don't know if we yet know what the durability is of these procedures, including adenotonsillectomy, because there's very little data that follows kids from childhood to older childhood or from older childhood to adulthood. Thinking about um, positive airway pressure or, or even BiPAP in some of these kids, how, how is that playing out in your clinical practice um, in terms of its use? So CPAP and BiPAP have really shown similar effectiveness to what they have in adults. Um, there is some debate about um, ability of kids to tolerate them. It's probably somewhere in that 40 to 50% range, which is very similar to what it is for adults. Recently, we've had a recall of many of the CPAP machines that kids use um, because of concerns about top particulate matter. And so right now, we're in an especially crisis in the summer of 2021, excuse me, um, trying to supply CPAP machines to kids. And so it's actually probably pushing us more to consider other options. But in, in a regular day when we're not in a pandemic and we're not worrying about recalls on CPAP machines, um, it's probably just as useful as in kids as as in adults and probably especially useful in those kids who have long-term neuromuscular issues where you know that they're going to continue to need some kind of support over time, even if you relieved soft tissue obstruction. That's interesting. The, I, I think historically, at least for me personally, um, I've thought of positive airway pressure as being more poorly tolerated in kids than adults. Um, just that, just the comment you made about it being relatively comparable. Yeah. You know, in fact, in kids with Down syndrome, there's some data showing that they do better than the other kids. And some of that may be sort of some of the, the personality characteristics of some of the kids in those studies who um, were more people pleasers than others. But um, everybody kind of rules out syndromic kids as having this as a possibility and it's worth trying. Diving into that, the syndromic kids and specifically Down syndrome kids a little bit more. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about hypoglossal nerve stimulation or, up, or uh, upper airway stimulation. Where do you see that fitting in going forward in the management of pediatric OSA? Yeah, I'm really enthusiastic about the hypoglossal nerve stimulator for kids with Down syndrome. The original trial looked at about 21 kids that was published. Um, the response rate was somewhere in the 70 to 80% range, which is very comparable for what it is for typical adults. And if you think about it, Down syndrome is really sort of the fully mo- loaded model for sleep apnea. They have hypotonia, they have mid-face hypoplasia. Um, oftentimes they have failed medical treatment and or other surgical treatment. And so um, the fact that it was as effective as it is in adults really is very encouraging. Um, and in fact, I have implanted it in a number of Down syndrome adults, uh, many of whom are willing to use it and tolerate it far more than they were ever willing to consider CPAP um, oral appliances. So I think especially in the Down syndrome population, but quite likely in other populations, um, it may have great utility in the pediatric world. Is that something you're putting in as an isolated procedure or typically combining with multi-level surgery? So there is some debate, you know, if somebody has really big tonsils, lingual tonsils, especially, do you think about lingual tonsillectomy prior to considering hypoglossal nerve stimulation? The trials that have been done, everybody's already undergone adenotonsillectomy and at least failed a CPAP trial. And so I think most of our data right now suggests it's for those kids with persistent disease. I don't have any data to suggest it's useful in other um, kids prior to that time. And I'm not sure 
And just as we're not sure on adults, if lingual tonsillectomy should come first, um, there are some reports and we should actually even have some CNMRI studies where we show people who get CPAP where the lingual tonsils are pushed down and actually caused further airway obstruction. And so it may be similar, but because it pulls the tongue forward, you may be able to overcome some things like large base of tongue, a lingual tonsil. So in my hands currently, I tend to do it as a solo procedure, but the debate is always, do you do anything for large lingual tonsils um, prior to consider doing it? And sometimes occasionally we will do nasal surgery at the same time. What is the thought of how that device will grow with the patient? Like as, as the patient gets older and grows and obviously the distance between that intercostal space and, and their upper chest and eventually where the, the, the stimulator sits, um, grows over time. Ah, what is that? How does that play into all of this? Yeah, there's a lot of extra space on those leads and they have sort of a sinusoidal pattern so that they're not straight, straight between point A and point B. There's a lot of extra lead length. In addition with the new two incision method, um, where you don't actually have a large distance between the implantable device and the respiratory lead for the chest, I think that becomes less and less of an issue over time. Um, I don't know of anybody who's been implanted under the age of 11. Um, and a lot of these, especially young females, probably are closer to their adult size than they're going to be. Um, boys probably have a little bit more time to grow. Um, but I don't think that we've had any concerns because those leads um, in the way in which they're implanted now can almost double in length. Um, and we're not talking about a lot of real estate. We're not going from your neck to your toes. We're going from your neck to your chest. And so I always especially try and leave a little extra lead length, understanding that there's going to be growth and development over time. So we've mentioned this a little bit a, a couple times already, but when thinking about palate surgery or more extensive palate surgery beyond just a tonsillectomy, um, as well as lingual tonsillectomy, how how does that typically fit into your clinical management currently? Yeah, lingual tonsillectomy is an area that I find really exciting when I see it because lingual tonsil hypertrophy is an area in which we know 60% of kids can resolve almost completely from their persistent or recurrent sleep apnea in kids who've had previous adenotonsillectomy. Um, in terms of expansion pharyngoplasty, I think the numbers are a little um, less discreet in that area. But again, if you look at the numbers, they're probably somewhere in the 50 to 60% range. And, and we're talking about salvage surgery in kids who've already failed adenotonsillectomy and for the most part have failed um, CPAP or, or autopap. So I'm fairly enthusiastic about these procedures. And there's also some data suggesting expansion pharyngoplasty may make it so that tongue-based procedures may be more useful in the future, including things like hypoglossal nerve stimulation. And what about superglottoplasty? Um, how is that fitting in? So there's a couple different groups. There's the infants with laryngomalacia where we find superglottoplasty can be really useful to resolve obstructive sleep apnea and allow them to move forward in terms of feeding difficulty and some of their other symptoms. Um, the second group is older kids who have sleep state dependent laryngomalacia. And that group's a little bit harder to suspect. So in kids who end up having sleep state dependent laryngomalacia, it's really easy to think about the group that maybe the parents hear strider at night or those who may have had laryngomalacia when they were younger. But more commonly, I see it in kids where maybe we aren't hearing any strider at night, or we didn't necessarily suspect it. And it may be primary or secondary. So it may be that there's an upper area of obstruction leading to this supraglottic collapse, or it may be an independent factor. And so in those where it's an independent factor, I find it's very effective. Again, somewhere in the 60, 60% range, if you look at a systematic review, 
in terms of how often they're completely resolved with supraglottoplasty if you have sleep state dependent laryngomalacia. And those kids who have upper airway obstruction, it's a little less clear. And so we have found a number of patients when you did take care of the upstream obstruction, whether that was large tonsils or large lingual tonsils or, or pharyngeal collapse, that sometimes that sleep state dependent laryngomalacia also resolves. And it's unclear right now whether you should consider supraglottoplasty at the same time as an upper airway obstruction surgery or whether you should do them separately. I can tell you, um, I have a partner at my institution who's got a long history of doing this, and she routinely would do it as a secondary procedure. I routinely would do it as a primary procedure at the same time as the upstream obstruction surgery. And quite honestly, between you and me, I think she had the right idea. And if you look at some of the tonsillectomy data, like on Budwin's data out of Europe, it showed that in kids who hadn't yet had their tonsils out, but had sleep state dependent laryngomalacia, almost all of them completely resolved afterwards, even though they just had an endotonsillectomy. So it's one of those things to keep in mind um, and may be really, really useful, but hard to tell if some of this may be secondary to upstream obstruction. And so maybe supraglottoplasty is a second tier procedure if you can find a good upstream area that, to address with either tonsil surgery, tongue surgery, or palatal surgery. In terms of the specifics surrounding pharyngoplasty that you mentioned, the expansion sphincter pharyngoplasty, is that pretty analogous to its procedure in adults? It really is. I would tell you, I, I talk with some of the the great sleep surgery on the adult side on a frequent basis. We teach some courses together and I feel like the evolution of those techniques is really similar on the pediatric and the adult sides. We're less likely to cut the pharyngeus. We're more likely to try and pexy that area to the lateral wall, whether it's the retromolar trigone or the, the hamulus in the adult world. I think they're a little bit more likely to pexy to the, um, uh, the refe laterally. In kids, I think that's a little more variable because they still have a lot of growth. And so I'm more likely to go to somewhere like the retromodular trigone, which is easier for me to predict and to think about what might happen over time. But other than those sort of development issues, I think really the evolution of the technique itself is very similar. When you're talking about all these sorts of procedures and you're seeing these patients post-operatively, like if someone has palate surgery or someone has a supraglottoplasty, what point are you ordering a, a follow-up polysomnogram on them? Yeah. So ideally it should be done about three months after surgery. And in fact, I'm hoping that this persistent sleep apnea statement will say something very similar because I think that's really the standard, even in the adult world, but especially among among folks in the pediatric world, just to think that we're going to give a few months um, for that area to um, heal, but also to see what some of the impact of scarring is going to be. Because that is the one thing in sleep surgery that's so different than some of the other head and neck surgery we do is that the impact of scarring can have a significant positive or negative effect on our outcome. A couple other areas surrounding treatment I wanted to ask you about. I know, obviously, craniofacial abnormalities um, can contribute significantly to pediatric OSA. Um, are there specific areas of that that, that um, you think is important to be mindful of in terms of just treating peds OSA? Yeah. So if we're thinking about infants with OSA, and again, this is probably not a group who've had a previous adenotonsillectomy. This is probably a primary group of sleep apnea patients. Um, mandibular distraction osteogenesis is definitely considered in kids with micronathia, especially with sleep apnea and or other issues like feeding issues. Um, in older kids, we do talk about um, either redistracting or primary distraction or, or a maxillomandibular advancement, which may be called two-jaw surgery, depending on where you treat or where you take care of patients. Um, but the concern is that if you do this too young, like in a five or six or seven-year-old, that you're probably going to have to repeat it when they're older 
and they finished facial growth, which in teenage boys is probably closer to 17 years of age and in teenage girls, maybe closer to 14 to 15 years of age. And so these are really useful techniques for some kids, but you just have to keep in mind, you want to try and minimize the need to do them repeatedly over time. And so in infants, again, those who are non-syndromic are more likely to have continued facial growth over time. And there may be some syndromic kids where you do these surgeries and the jaw doesn't continue to grow up as the kid or keep up as the kid continues to grow. Shifting gears a little bit, what about um, kids that have significant comorbid obesity um, in terms of diet, weight loss, but then even considering things like bariatric surgery? Is that something that's considered in peds management? Definitely. You know, so morbidly obese kids, um, I think there's some debate. I mean, I will tell you, I absolutely recommend adenotonsillectomy as first-line treatment for morbidly obese kids with large tonsils and adenoids, even two plus or greater. There are some people who will cite the literature that complete resolution of sleep apnea is less common in these kids and may consider other options as a primary option like CPAP or maybe even like bariatric surgery. I will tell you in persistent sleep apnea where they continue to have sleep apnea after their tonsils and their adenoids come out, oftentimes there's a lot of lateral wall collapse and that's because there's fat pockets in those lateral walls and there's fat infiltration in the base of tongue all of which contribute to collapse of the posterior oropharyngeal airway. And so bariatric surgery for many of these kids may be their best solution, not just from a sleep apnea standpoint, but of all the comorbidities that can develop over time, I think bariatric surgery um, has been shown to be more effective than the medical weight loss options. Now, with that said, absolutely, if you're successful with medical weight loss options, those are great and should be considered prior to bariatric surgery. But we oftentimes will put people on the path of medical weight loss with the thought that bariatric surgery could be a longer term con consideration based on the outcomes of either their medical or their surgical weight loss. Last question I wanted to ask you about all these related treatment topics. When we think about treatment success um, in kids, and granted, it's a little bit of a loaded question, but how, how do you think about treatment success? What, what in your mind, uh, when you're counseling or talking to parents, how how do you talk to them about treatment success for their kid with OSA? Well, one of the most important things about understanding treatment success is understanding what families and what children's goals are. So shared decision-making is really critical in this area. It's really easy for surgeons to think about a score on an OSA 18, which is a sleep-dependent quality of life survey, or score on a sleep study or an overnight saturation study. But Really what's most important to families, at least in my experience from looking at focus groups, is to look at quality of life. It's to look at daytime and nighttime symptoms. Um, and so, yeah, we want to treat a sleep study. We want to we make sure that your sleep apnea is at a level at which we feel like you're going to be safe from a cardiovascular standpoint. So I think that's one component. But the other is resolution of symptoms. There's very few people who walk into an otolaryngologist's office or a sleep lab or a pediatrician's office because their child they can tell has an apnea hypopnea index of 16. You know, so the reason they came in is because they're snoring or their quality of sleep is terrible or their daytime sleepiness is a problem or their hyperactivity keeps them from doing well in school. And so if you look at those kind of neurocognitive outcomes, those are usually the primary concern of families and really should be our primary concern. At the same time, there is at least adult data that long-term elevated apnea hypopnea indexes and low saturation indices um, can have an effect on in cardiorespiratory outcomes. And 
that's a little bit harder. You know, it's, I have a 12 year old and trying to explain to him what, what he's doing now is good for college means nothing. So trying to explain to somebody why 15 years from now, this will prevent you from having cardiac issues or high blood pressure also has no impact on a 12 year old or even their parents to be totally honest sometimes. And so really focusing on sort of the short-term outcomes in terms of, of quality life and symptoms, but with an eye toward the fact that we think that the earlier and quicker you ameliorate symptoms in childhood probably makes it less likely you're going to have adult symptoms may be an important point. And we probably need to do a lot more research to understand, you know, what we need to do in childhood in order to make it so that they aren't their parents who have high blood pressure or obesity or other cardiopulmonary issues. Well, Dr. Ishman, that um, wraps up all the questions I had for you for today. Were there any areas that um, uh, topics we covered or things we didn't cover that you'd like to circle back to? No, I, th- I think it was such a great conversation. I really appreciate it. I think the only thing we didn't talk about was sort of the input of dental folks. And I do think in kids with high arched palates, we you do want to think about things like maxillary expansion or palate expansion. Um, there's not as much data in kids and there's not as much long-term data, um, but it might be something that helps them both from nasal obstruction and from obstructive sleep apnea. And so just think about the inclusion of your dental colleagues as you work your way through sort of the thought process for these kids. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. I'll now move on to the summary portion of the podcast. Um, so pediatric OSA and, and obstructive sleep apnea syndrome in, in kids um, has several really important distinctions from OSA in adults. Um, beyond the obvious difference, the fact that first-line treatment in kids is uh, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, which in adults, um, first-line therapy is positive airway pressure. Beyond that obvious distinction, there are several nuanced distinctions that differ pretty significantly. So, for instance, one thing we talked a bit about was differences in polysomnogram testing. Um, for instance, we monitor things like CO2 in kids that um, it's not a metric that we we monitor or pay as much attention to in adults. Um, talked about if kids spent um, greater than 10% or more of their total sleep time at 50, mi- 50 millimeters of mercury or higher um, uh, in terms of end tidal CO2, that's something that we would consider hypoventilation and independently can be something that pushes you towards treatment. Um, I talked a bit about the differences in drug-induced sleep endoscopy. Although drug-induced sleep endoscopy can be used similarly, such as um, the workup for um, upper airway stimulation or hyperglossal nerve stimulation, there are several unique features to kids. For instance, although it's common to use uh, inhalational anesthetics in in short procedures in kids, um, this is not something that we think of as a useful um, anesthetic for the purposes of drug-induced sleep endoscopy as it changes the tonicity of the upper airway, specifically the lateral walls. And this can give a propensity um, to overestimate the degree and levels of collapse. Um, Other important considerations is in kids, for instance, you're looking at supraglottic um, function, something that is not common um, to pay as much attention to, uh, at least in a similar way in adults. And then a whole host of different treatment options that are very unique to kids. For instance, just going off of what I just mentioned, the idea of doing a supraglottoplasty for kids with the, um, symptomatic laryngomalacia, um, the maxillofacial uh, surgery, or things like mandibular distraction oxygenesis for 
addressing maxillofacial problems, things like bariatric surgery, tracheostomy. Those are things that are common in both kids and adults that have um, a, a certain, certainly a role to play. Tracheostomy being more common in children with morbid obesity or those with neurologic impairment, multiple comorbidities, or concurrent pulmonary disease uh, situations like that. Hypoglossal nerve situ- stimulation is something that's undergoing ongoing investigation, um, particularly in kids with Down syndrome. And lastly, there's also palate surgery in a similar manner, even though some nuanced differences between kids and adults, but certainly expansion pharyngo, uh, sphincter pharyngoplasty is something that is uh, considered in kids with uh, obstruction at the velum. Lastly, in terms of follow-up for these kids, typically uh, a post-operative PSG is, is obtained around three, minute, three months is recommended. All right, I'll now move on to the um, question portion of the podcast. Just as a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a couple seconds, allow you to think about the answer, and then give the answer. So first question, how does polysomnogram testing differ between kids and adults? So there's multiple differences here. Um, There's a bunch of very nuanced details like for instance differences in definitions of periodic limb movements and things like that but key things to be aware of number one we define ahi the apnea hypopnea index um differently the severity levels are different so in kids we think of of uh, mild osa is an ahi one to five moderate five to ten and severe is above ten that's different than uh, adults for instance um that go five to fifteen is mild fifteen to thirty moderate and above thirty being severe also things that we've talked about a couple times now, such as monitoring um, features like CO2 and looking for hypoventilation where kids, if they spend over 10% of the night at 50 50 millimeters of mercury or more for entitled CO2 um, is indicative of of hypoventilation and that independently can be something that pushes you towards treatment. Second question, during drug-induced sleep endoscopy in children, what important anesthetic consideration must be accounted for? Answer here is um, have to be careful not to use inhalational anesthetics during drug-induced sleep endoscopy in children. The reason is is that changes upper airway tonicity and specifically lateral wall the collapsibility of the lateral walls. And so you can have a you can be, it can be a setup to overestimate the degree of collapse and the levels of collapse. It can give you some misinformation, and so that that's why most people end up preferring either propofol or Presidex um, for drug-induced sleep endoscopy in kids. Last question, what new surgical intervention is being investigated for the treatment of refractory OSA in children with Down syndrome? Answer here is hypoglossal nerve stimulation, um, the Inspire device, also called upper airway stimulation. That's uh, a hot topic of ongoing research. Similar to adults, the workup includes uh, drug-induced sleep endoscopy, and you're looking um, for complete collapse at the velum. And, and if that if there is that finding, the complete collapse at the velum, that's a contraindication, at least right now, um, in the United States for pursuing uh, upper airway stimulation. All right, that'll wrap things up for today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.